you might think it's, it's strange that uh, we would look at the prodigal God, uh, prodigal son story through uh, Psalm chapter 16, but I, I'm hoping that you'll see the connection in a couple of moments. Uh, for those of you who are, are new with us um, and wondering what we're doing, our small groups, as Dan said earlier, are going through uh, an amazing little book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And um, I know my small group is, is benefiting from it and it's just raising lots of good questions and a lot of good self-examination about who's older brother, younger brother, um, and sometimes both. Uh, but uh, for those of you who are just joining us, um, what I'm going to say won't make sense unless I just kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of the prodigal son story. Um, many of you are familiar with it. Um, and that is a father that has two sons, and the youngest son uh, comes to his father while he's still alive and asks for his share of the inheritance, and the father graciously uh, gives him um, his uh, share of the inheritance. He goes out and spends it wildly until he has nothing left. The famine hits the land and he ends up feeding pigs. And he has a change of heart and he goes back to his father. He confesses his sin and the father um, embraces him in mercy and love and then reestablishes him as a, as a full-blown son. An amazing picture of God's mercy towards those who have been um, who've done wrong and gone the wrong direction and find their lives and their dreams shattered because of their own sinful choices. Meanwhile, the older son, still at home, um, has done well. He's performed. He has um, done what his father's asked of him. But when he hears about the father's grace and compassion to the younger son, um, then he gets angry and bitter. And the father in love goes out and entreats the older brother, will you, will you come in to the feast? And we're celebrating that your, your brother was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And the older brother is left in his angry and bitter state and refuses to come into the celebration. And that's where the, the prodigal son story ends. It ends kind of open-ended, which is really an appeal to those people standing around Jesus listening to the prodigal uh, son story uh, with a decision. What are you going to do? Are you going to come in or are you going to stand outside angry because our Father shows grace and mercy to um, sinful people? Well, that's kind of the prodigal son story in a, in a nutshell for those who may be new to the Bible or, or, or just joining us. Um, but I wanted to um, kind of look at it, since you're reading the book and you don't need, it, need me to retell it, um, just to give a particular uh, perspective on it, but through um, uh, Psalm 16. It's a, it's a psalm that's been, that was written by David almost a thousand years before Jesus. And um, it has been very fruitful for my soul over the years as I've, I've thought about it and meditated on it. And I'm just going to read for you here the first uh, six verses, uh, beginning in verse 1, this psalm of David. And then I'm going to come back to a single phrase statement that I want to look at. David writes, Preser Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Of all of the phrases in here, which are wonderful, and the rest of the psalm is fantastic as well, there's one that, that has caught my attention and um, been an object or a subject of meditation, and that is the statement that he makes in verse 2, where he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And it's that last part that's intriguing. I have no good apart from you. Now, at first glance, that really should um, kind of spark some questions 
It may spark some alarm um, or may seem somewhat unrealistic or, or um, untrue or dishonest that I have, that David could actually say, I have no good apart from you. And he's speaking to the Lord. Some of the questions that might be raised as a result of that is, okay, well, if I have no good apart from you, then what about the good things that, that are a part of my life? You know, the, the place that I live, the work that I have, the career that you have, or the family kids that you have, or, or, or the wife or husband that you have. What about those things? Do those count? When David says, I have no good apart from you, I think about it for a moment in terms of asking the question, isn't, isn't a, a finding something that you're supposed to do with your life like a career or profession, even if it's staying home and raising children for a season, isn't it a wonderful thing to find what your purpose is and then to carry it out for a teacher who loves to teach and is good at teaching to stand in the classroom and, and do what he or she was made to do in teaching students? Um, or an athlete who is, who's wired and has a kind of this function or purpose of, of, uh, of competing on the field and the exhilaration of it, or a musician who loves to both experience and enjoy and express the emotion of music and does it well with a, with a talent for music? Um, I think the answer would have to be yes. It's a, it's, a, it's a good thing. So what does David mean when he say, says, I have no good apart from you? Was his profession as king and general of the army, um, was it counted as part of this? Or maybe even closer to home, our children. You know, it's just an amazing gift to be able to look down and see these little green eyes peering up at you. And um, I have two pairs of green eyes and one pair of blue eyes. A pair of blue eyes peering up at me too. You know, and you hear them cooing at first, and then the first time they say, Daddy, your heart just wants to explode out of your chest. It's just it's an amazing experience, and those of you who have experienced it know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I was reading an article of, about uh, the late Steve Jobs. This is uh, People magazine, uh, one most wonderful magazine ever written. Um, for those of you who are really interested in bibliographical information, this is October 11th edition, page 62, where um, with Steve Jobs, one of the things that he said was he says um, that in becoming a dad, he said that was uh, 10,000 times better than anything he had ever done. And I resonate with that. I mean, being a dad is, an, is a precious thing. So what, then what does it mean? Back to the question, how could David say, who had children himself, um, that I have no good apart from you? Or how about that, that special someone, the soulmate, that, um, that either if you're single you're looking for, most are looking for, not everybody, um, or that person that you found. You know, that, that companion for life, the person you love, loves you, the person you get to uh, do life with, share memories with, cook with, you know, raise kids with, someday hopefully sit on a nice porch in rocking chairs and, you know, drinking lemonade, you know? I mean, a lot of people look to marriage, even if they experience bad marriage, they look at romance and that relationship is really the epitome of, of human relationships, which is why so many love songs are written and why there are so many movies about finding love and romance, because that's something that we, we long for. Um, so when we find it, isn't that a good thing? And David had a lot of wives. What? Uh, that was a mistake, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> how can he say, I have... No good apart from you, Lord. No good with all of those things. 
And you could go on to a place to live. Many of us love where we live. Some of us may not. Um, Or food that we eat. Love to eat different foods with different flavors. What about all these things? How can David say, in light of everything, I have no good apart from you? And I think it's important at this point to pause and back up to the very beginning of history and recognize that these things were given to our first parents um, back before the fall and before sin ever entered in. That um, God gave Adam a wife. He presented her a wife, the only person to have been walked down the aisle by God the Father himself. And uh, she had to be gorgeous. I don't think God would have skimped on the first woman. And she was naked, too, which is kind of a double whammy there. (laughs) Don't let that distract you from the rest of the message. But in that context, it was wonderful. Um, but they also, he also gave them a home. He, he, he actually made them a home. That was the garden. God himself planted it, and he planted fruit trees, and there was food in abundance. So he gave marriage. He gave a place to live. He gave fruit on the trees. He gave them the potential and the promise of children, which would have been a joy, because um, they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And then he gave Adam meaningful work, and naturally Eve would have had meaningful work as well as a mother. He was a, a career gardener. And back at that time, work wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing to find your purpose purpose in life is a good and wonderful thing. So, so all of these things were given back before sin fell, or sin came into the world. So they had to be good because God looked at it all and he says, this is very good until, until they reached across the boundary of what God's generous love had provided, deciding to go outside or apart from, to use David's words here, apart from the Lord. I think that the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, uh, signified, among many things, um, man's choice, his pathway outside of and apart from what God's generous love had provided, and therefore apart from God himself. And that has been really the, the path of human experience through history after the fall is trying to find, independent from God, um, blessing or life outside of or apart from relationship with him. And that, of course, is, is, uh, brings us to the, to the prodigal son story because that's exactly what both brothers do. Both brothers are seeking a path of life that is outside of or apart from a relationship with their father. They're looking at something outside of or apart from their relationship with him. So the younger brother wants to spend his his father's inheritance on wild living, pursuing the the path of pleasure, which many people do today, uh, while the older brother chooses the path of of self-righteous, performance-based, accomplish-oriented, accomplishment-oriented living. Um, But at the, again, expense of the father to the exclusion of and apart from that phrase, apart from his father. And both of those paths in the prodigal story end in misery. Um, The path of the one who pursues pleasure ends at a pig trough where he is isolated and ruined morally um, before he comes back. And the the end of the path for the older brother is, is anger, resentment, and bitterness refusing to come back into the party even though his father invites him. 
because he didn't get it his way. He sees his father as somehow unfair and just, which makes him the judge. And both of those, as I said, end in misery. One in moral failure, all alone, isolated, and the other bitter, anger, and twisted. And I'll tell you why. Because everything outside of the Lord, everything created, or institutions like marriage, they were never designed to bear the weight of the center of one's existence. They just don't have the bandwidth to support the center of life. Not finding Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, um, not the best career in the world, um, not having kids, or finding the best place to live. In fact, when that becomes the center of life, any one of those things, and you could add a, a, a big long list of what people often place at the center, is that when that becomes central, then we try to squeeze it to satisfy what only God himself can satisfy. And oftentimes, we end up warping, twisting, or ruining it. Because it was not designed to be the center of life. The human need for worship and the expectations for greatness and the desire to enjoy and know glory is too great within the human soul for any of those things to be central to life. In fact, if anything but God is central to one's life, the foundation, the, the reason for your life, um, then in the end, whatever that central thing is ends up becoming your, your God. And it will lead inevitably to misery and suffering. I think it's interesting in this psalm right here that where David says in verse 2, I have no good apart from you, that he goes on um, in verse 4 to say that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In other words, any other thing than God that is at the center, the foundation, the pinnacle of one's life, the reason for living, the pursuit of that will inevitably lead to a multiplication of sorrows, of misery. That too comes out in the prodigal son story. They both end up in misery. One morally ruined, the other twisted with anger and bitterness. When we put anything else at the center. And yet that is precisely the path, whichever particular stream you take, all of them are going the same direction in our culture and society, and that is namely trying to find something to be at the center to give us a sense of meaning, significance, and worth. Anything but the Lord. And even people who try to put God at the center outside of himself revealed in Jesus end up making God in their own image, according to their own desires and likeness. Kind of recreate him like you want him to be, and then that's the God that then you serve. But that's what people are doing. And that's why there is really so much misery because God is not the centerpiece. Nothing else can bear the weight of it. Now you could use a whole bunch of analogies of what uh, uh, a de-centered life, a life not centered on God, uh, would look like. It'd be like all of the planets of our solar system deciding that they were going to leave the sun. They didn't need the sun, which is what holds it all together and gives warmth and life to its planets. Um, there would be disconnection, chaos, and eventually death. 
it would be, to use an analogy that Jesus gave, it would be like a branch deciding it was going to sever itself from the vine, thinking it could live by itself. It can't. The whole basis of its life comes from the vine. Or my, my finger, I was thinking about this this morning, it's my finger looking at me and if it could talk, saying to me, I am sick and tired of serving you, pick up your own coffee mug. I'm leaving. Well, it would, it would die because its whole existence is derivative upon my being. In the same way that you and I's life and existence is derivative upon God himself. And without him as at the, at the center, it just moves towards chaos and darkness and eventually death. That's what it does. And that essentially is what, what sin is. It's, it's, it's the displacement of God from the center of one's life and putting something else in his place. It's really what it is. The displacement of God as center or foundation, the reason for living, and putting something else in its place. And as I mentioned, obviously people who don't believe in God um, have put something else there, but it's really easy for Christians and believers to do the same thing. Oftentimes what we say is at the center of our life isn't really at the center of our life. Sometimes we have to discover it um, by God bringing circumstances into our life that touches, threatens, or removes the very thing we love the most. And then find ourselves angry at the Lord because he took it away or denied us something. I know people who are angry at the Lord because Mr. Wright never showed up. Just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal found himself angry and bitter at his dad because he was denied something. And that can be a discovery like, wow, Lord, maybe there's something else at the center. Maybe it's my child, my son, my daughter, my grandchildren. Maybe it is my job. Maybe it's my investments. Or maybe my wife has been at the center. And as soon as that's threatened, well then, when there's anger and bitterness of the God to the point where you really don't want to be with him, you have to almost ask yourself, are you not the older brother in the story? And perhaps the reason there's so much bitterness against the Lord is because something else is at the center. Those are some probing things. God brings us, I think, circumstances in life to show us what's at the center. And David here says he understands and knows and believes there is only one center, and that is the Lord himself, which is why he says, I have no good apart from you. You are the center and the foundation of life. And he goes on to give lots of reasons as to why that is. I mean, he sees the Lord as the one who preserves him on the battlefield, the one who keeps him alive, his refuge in times of conflict, in times when things seem chaotic and, and he's being attacked. Um, that's verse 1. He sees the Lord as his chosen portion, as his cup, as his lot in life. He sees the Lord as his inheritance. He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Side note, in the story of the prodigal son, the inheritance is something outside of the father's love. Here for David, it is the father himself who is his inheritance. 
It's not just what God can give, it's God himself is what he's saying. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is his chosen portion and his inheritance. The Lord is his counselor, verse 7. The Lord is the one who is before him and beside him, the one who keeps him from being moved. That's verses 8 and 9. The Lord is the reason for his gladness and his rejoicing, despite the fact that he walks in the valley of the shadow of death. Um, The Lord is the one who will rescue his soul from death and will not let the Holy One see decay. Um, and give him life. You have made known to me, O Lord, the path of life. This is 11 and 12. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. He knows he's the center. That he is everything at all times for him. And he believes that, which is why he says, I have no good apart from you. And here's the thing. When that's real in your life, when, when the Lord really is the foundation or the center or the reason for living and the one you trust in, then that frees you to enjoy the things that he's given to the nth degree. And it keeps us from trying to squeeze out of a wife or children or a career something that only God himself can satisfy or secure. And then you can enjoy them for who they are and what they are rather than trying to make them central. Many marriages have been crushed because it was the center of a person's life and they tried to manage and control because they wanted it to be everything, only to crush the other person. Parents do it to children because that was at the center. But when God is at the center and he's the object of your trust, in all situations, there is a sense of release. And then you can actually enjoy them more with a sense of freedom. I think this is probably what St. Augustine was getting at when he wrote this in his Confessions, when he said, for too little doth, pardon the um, old English, for too little doth he love thee who loves anything with thee which he loveth not for thee. Or to put that in a positive, that when God is the supreme love of life and the reason for life and the, the foundation of life and the center of life, then everything else is a means of knowing and loving and enjoying him more. So that you can actually, I can, I can look down at the baby green eyes or the blue eyes and hear that and just know, first of all, this is the Lord who made this person. And I look to him as this is his good gift. This is a reflection of, of the author of life, of one who is so generous, so gracious, and so wise, and so giving. And now you begin to love these things for his sake and for the enjoyment of who he is reflected in his creation rather than loving the creation in separation or apart from the creator. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I have no good thing apart from you. I think David, in the end, would, could enjoy his wife and his kids and his job precisely because God was at the center. He really was. It wasn't just words, but he believed, uh, I have no good apart from you. And that is where life's supposed to be. That's what the Christian life is about. Now, if I was to stop here at this point, I would leave you basically with an appeal to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and make sure that your life is centered on him, not the property you own, not the house, not your kids, and not your husband or wife. But there wouldn't, in my opinion and my belief, there wouldn't be much spiritual food or strength or motive 
in simply leaving you with an appeal. Because no matter how much I will myself to try and make God central, in the end, I, I know that I, I'm, I'm a weak, frail person. And I don't think there's a person here who would not raise her hand and say, there's times when I've slidden off center and my life is centered on something else that I shouldn't have. I mean, that's what the hymn writer writes. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Leave, prone to leave the God I love. It's in us to, to, to want other things in the center. Which means we stumble and we fall. David is a perfect example. The one who says, I have no good apart from you. He reached across the boundary line of God's gracious love and took what wasn't his. So he failed. So simply to leave us with an appeal of make God central in your life, I don't think in the end puts gas in the tank. I think what puts gas in the tank of the, of the Christian heart in the end is re recognizing that in the story of the prodigal as well as David's life is that God pursued him. The prodigal, the father pursued. He went out, he graciously embraced, and in an act of unmerited grace, he just restored his fallen son. In the same way that the Lord came after David when he failed to make God central to his life. And he sent him a word and then he was gracious and forgave him according to the mercy of his steadfast love. Psalm 51. Is to remember in the end, and at the end of the day, what, what really motivates a Christian to make God central in life is to recognize that he is infinitely gracious and always calls his children home graciously and opens the door for them. And to recognize the enormity of his merciful heart towards us when we stumble and we fall, which all of us do. And to remember that the, the most vivid, the most um, extraordinary, outlandish, and lavish display of the heart of our Father for his fallen, stumbling children is in one place, and that's the cross. We sang about a few moments ago. There's no more clear display of just how much the Lord loves his people than that event in which the Son of God came to be banished from home that we might be accepted. Or words of the song, that he was forsaken by his Father on the cross so that we might be accepted. And that's the heart of the Father through the Son reclaiming his fallen, stumbling children. And it's that that shows us the depth in the heart of God's love more than anything else. Now, you know, I just... The collective intellectual reflection on the cross could not grasp um, over a million generations how deep God's love is for his people. But there's this, there's this writer that I, I was reading yesterday, and he took a stab at trying to capture in words the heart of the Father through the Son, the forsaken Son, that I want to I read to you. Um, it's a reflection of Jesus' dying words. It's a reflection on Jesus' dying words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that the fallen sons of Adam could be accepted. And this is what he writes. And I want you to feel this. I, I just read it. <clears throat> 
in the moment of the son's greatest need and greatest pain, God is not there. The son cries and is not heard. The familiar resource, the ultimate resource, the only resource is not there. The God who is always there, the God who is needed now, as he had never been needed before, was nowhere to be seen. There was no answer to the son's cry. There was no comfort. Jesus was left godless, with no perception of his own sonship, unable for the one and only time in his life to say, Abba, Father. That he was left with no sense of God's lo- no sense of God's love and no sense of the operation of God's purpose. There was nothing but why, trying vainly to bridge the darkness. He was sin. He was lawlessness. And as such, he was banished to the black hole where lawlessness be- belongs and which no sound can escape but why. Why was the, or that was the son's only word in his final agony as he reached out to God whom he needed so desperately, but whom as sin he couldn't discern and from whose presence he was outcast. There could be no accord. God, his son, not sparing. He had to be dealt with not as son, but as sin. I just, I read that this from a morning. It just made me want to weep at the sense of I don't even know how to say it. The enormity of of God's grace, those words don't even capture it. No sense of his father's love in those moments of abandonment. Why? Because he wanted us to be sons and daughters. He wanted us to come home. And if that is the heart of God in Scripture, which I fully and completely believe it is, then I want to say with David, you know, you are my chosen portion. And just recognizing the overpowering nature of his love that would go to that length of abandoning his own son. At the same time, Jesus in love, allowing himself to be forsaken for our sake. It makes me want to make him the center of my life, not because he demands it, but because his love calls for it. Who doesn't want to love someone like this? Who doesn't want to center their life on someone who loves that much? That, in the end, I think, is what recaptures the heart of God's people and recenters us as recognizing, once again, this is how deep his love goes. I've never known grace or mercy that much. And just to feel the wonder and the joy of being broken by his love. What an amazing thing. So if you're, you're, uh, you're here this morning wondering, I, I, your, your, your dreams have been shattered You've centered your life on the wrong things and you know it. You've experienced David chapter 1 verse 4 when it says that sorrows of those who chase after another God, God shall multiply and you know it. Now, this is, this is, a, this is, there's no, no, nothing and no place, no distance that the love of God does not go and say, come home. Come home. And if you're a, a believer who, who has perhaps, um, you come here and if you were to be honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what, I, I'm pretty bitter at God right now because of things he's taken away or he's denied me. Then maybe this morning you'll discover that the reason that is is because there's something else at the center. And his grace is big enough to cover that. He's just saying to you, come home and allow my love and grace to recenter me in your life. And to let it go.
to relinquish it to him in light of his grace and his love. I hope, if that's you, I hope that these words will unlock the prison of your anger and bitterness towards the Lord and the sunlight of his grace and love will cast out your darkness this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, as I said at the, at the beginning, I, I know that we are weak and frail people and, and I know that anyone who has the spirit of the living God in them really genuinely from the heart, from the inside out, wants you to be center. And yet we all struggle day to day, day in and day out of, with distractions and with the good things that you have given of making them too important in our life. And, and I just ask that you would be gracious as you are and just continue to, to beckon us on the basis of the cross and through the preaching of the cross and the gospel that you would beckon us come home and that we would have the faith always to hear those words and know that you have finished um, you have finished redemption for us and you have forgiven uh, because of the life of your son laid down we just rejoice in who you are God you are so amazing and we worship you in Christ's name